Okay, well, um, thank you very much uh, for coming. I, I'd like to uh, uh, welcome you all to McDonnell Hall. Um, just working okay? Oh, there we go. All right. So, let me uh, dispense with the microphone. Um, so, welcome to the 31st uh, Donald Ross Hamilton Lecture. Uh, welcome to uh, the physics department at Princeton uh, and uh, McDonnell Hall. Uh, my name is Dan Marlowe. I'm the chair of the physics department. And it's my honor to uh, just give you a little bit of background about the lecture series uh, as part of, uh, part of the welcome. Um, I'd especially like to welcome the, uh, uh, the members of the Hamilton family, Mrs. Hamilton, uh, class of 1935 and, and kin who were uh, gracious enough to be here tonight. Um, the Hamilton Lecture Fund, which uh, provides for these lectures, was established by friends uh, and family of Donald Ross Hamilton. Um, through the years, it has benefited from contributions uh, from the class of 1935. One uh, member of the class of 19, Princeton class of 1935 is uh, Bob Winters, who uh, unfortunately passed away uh, this past uh, January, but he was a longtime supporter of Princeton and this lecture series uh, in particular, since he was a, a friend of uh, Donald Hamilton. Um, <clears throat> let me just tell you a little bit uh, about Hamilton. He was born in 1914 uh, in Hartford, Vermont. He went to public school in Vermont and New York City. Uh, for his undergraduate education, he came to Princeton. Uh, he graduated in 19, uh, with honors uh, in 1935, class of 1935. Um, he did his graduate work uh, at Columbia. Uh, his thesis advisor was I.I. Robbie, uh, one of the titans of 20th century physics, a, a great man, a Nobel laureate. Um, and at that point, presumably, is when he developed his uh, lifelong research interest, which was uh, nuclear physics. Um, after completing his PhD, he became a junior, he joined the Society of Fellows at Harvard, uh, where he was a junior fellow. Uh, shortly thereafter, uh, the Second World War broke out. Uh, he, during the war, uh, was employed by Sperry Gyroscope and worked at uh, the MIT Radiation Lab uh, as part of the, uh, the war effort. Um, at at the conclusion of the war, he had the good sense to uh, return to Princeton as a faculty member, uh, where he, uh, he joined the faculty. He eventually was the uh, Cyrus Fogg Brackett uh, Professor of Physics in the department. And in 1958, he became Dean of the Graduate School uh, and did a, a wonderful job as, as Dean of the Graduate School. Uh, in particular, uh, during his, his tenure as, as dean, the number of undergraduates uh, went, or, uh, sorry, the number of graduate students in the university went from 800 to 1,100, and perhaps more significantly, uh, the first women uh, were admitted for graduate study at Princeton. Um, okay, so uh, just a little bit more. In, in my humble opinion, he got it exactly right uh, when he said that physics uh, is the queen of the sciences and most of the liberal arts. I was curious to know which, <laughs> which liberal arts he would uh, say would be higher. 
but uh, despite what some might think of a somewhat chauvinistic view, uh, he was actually interested in many things. And um, although uh, he was very interested in research, he was very generous uh, devoting his time to, to other pursuits, teaching. Uh, he was uh, obviously, as dean of the graduate school, an extremely able administrator. And it was just characteristic that he was just, in general, very generous with his time. Uh, he also uh, was a trustee of the Princeton University Press. And in all of those roles, he served with distinction. Uh, his interest in teaching was such that, uh, unfortunately, later in life, he, uh, he became ill and, and was uh, forced to retire. But even so, he uh, would host uh, graduate seminars for the PhD students in his home. Uh, even after that. So um, that's uh, a little uh, talk about uh, Donald Ross Hamilton. Um, to introduce tonight's speaker, I would like to uh, yield that honor to Bill Brinkman. Um, we were very fortunate. Bill is a uh, senior scientist in the physics department. Um, one of my first uh, acts as chair was to uh, recruit him um, and after a, a distinguished career uh, at Bell Labs, where he, he led uh, the research effort there. Um, he, at that time, was just about to be to leave Bell Labs and to become uh, chair of the American Physical Society, and uh, he needed a, a place to hang his hat. Well, he did that, so uh, we were very uh, lucky that uh, he chose to hang his hat here. Um, since then, he's uh, done many things, uh, great favors for the department, uh, the most recent of which was to get uh, tonight's speaker to uh, come and agree uh, to give this talk. So let me turn the floor over to Bill, and uh, we'll, uh, he will introduce tonight's speaker. Extend. Let's see if I can make this working. No? Yes? Yes, if I hold the way up, that's what you have to do. Well, look, it gives me a great pleasure to introduce Steve Chu. I've, uh, I've known Steve since, um, since his graduate student days at, at, at uh, University of California, Berkeley. He graduated from there in, in 1977, was a postdoc there for a year. And, um, and then he came to, to Bell Laboratories at, at that stage. Uh, I always remember this because um, we had a great debate about whether we should hire Steve Chu because he, uh, he was working on some crazy thing called neutral currents. And, 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 uh, and uh, we, uh, we at Bell Laboratories looked at this thing and said, gee, what do we want to do neutral currents at Bell Laboratories for him? And, uh, and we, uh, but when we talked, talked to Steve and he said, oh, I'm not wed to neutral currents. And he was more than willing to work on something else. And so, um, so we decided, well, that would be a good idea, and we'd have him come. Well, this, of course, from then on, it's all history. Uh, Steve, uh, of course, came to Bell Labs in, in, by 1986 and uh, had invented this thing called nuclear cooling and, and um, molasses, um, and, uh, a way of approach to, um, to how you, you cool down a set of atoms, and, and that whole business has become an enormous uh, activity among physicists today, and he's gone on to use it uh, for a variety of different uh, uh, techniques um, uh, and uh, study of uh, and biology and and uh, and uh, polymer physics and a whole other set of uh, of activities. He um, he always remembers me because it, he I was at Sandia at the time. He did this experiment. We met at a meeting, and he told me about. It. 
for Steve, and he didn't have an answer. <laughs> and and um, so I, I, I actually look at him today and say, well, he's finally decided to do something useful, and and uh, he's um, he's now become the head of, of Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, and uh, he is um, he is determined to try to uh, take that position and use it to uh, help solve our energy problems. And that's what you're going to hear about tonight. It's going to have very little to do with nuclear cooling. I mean, of uh, atom cooling and, and and, uh, tra optical traps, uh, but it will be an interesting story because I tell you, one thing I know about Steve is he's always totally enthusiastic about science and totally enthusiastic about what he's doing. So let's welcome Steve Chu. Thank you. Are you going to turn this on? Is it on? It's on. Good. Well, I actually have to convince it's not, Bill didn't tell the complete story. Uh, when I told him about this thing, I met him in the APS meeting and said, Bill, you can't believe this, but we just learned how to cool atoms at really low temperatures and we can hold on to them with light. And he noted my enthusiasm. <laughs> and he said, what are you going to do with this? I don't know, but it's really neat. <laughs> and in fact, I knew of a few things, but I didn't know of all the things, and, and in, in the ensuing years, it, it turned out to be uh, pretty useful. So it's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. I have to say, I mean, a real confession here, it's, a, it's especially a great pleasure to be here because I was rejected when I applied here as an undergraduate. <laughs> so, so, um, so yet you welcome me back. <laughs> um, um, and one other comment about uh, the comment of Hamilton. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure what he was thinking about, but I would have to say that if among the students here, the graduates and undergraduates, I think the best liberal arts education is one where you learn to teach yourself things and learn to think critical about what you teach yourself and what you learn. And that's it. And in that respect, physics is pretty good. So beyond that, you know, it is probably, in my opinion, you know, one of the, the best liberal arts educations you can get. So, because what you learn as an undergraduate and a graduate is going to be a very small fraction of what you're going to be using in the future. That maybe says something about what they teach you. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to talk about energy. Um, and I just want to review a little bit of, uh, this is a little bit old data. Um, about the use of energy in the world, that the industrialized country is going to be, um, it's doubled from 1970 to 2000, and it's going to triple by 2020. And the developing country is going to pass the developed countries by roughly 2020-25. They're ahead of schedule because China was ahead of, is ahead of schedule. Now, actually, and this is Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, there was this uh, economic collapse, but they're, they're coming back. Now, Actually, I'm going to be somewhat optimistic. Is this a really evil thing? Well, yes and no. You have to remember where we were 2,000 years ago without the use of energy. Um, never in the days of the Roman Empire, for example, would a Roman emperor ever think that they can plug a small wire into uh, a wall and out would jump 20 horses to clean a carpet. All right, it's pretty good, or 10 horses or uh, 100 to 300 horses to take you to the grocery store, or hundreds of thousands of horses on coal to fly you 
around the world. So the, the fact that we have been able to uh, find, exploit, and use energy has given great wealth to the developed countries, and hopefully it will give great wealth uh, to all people around the world. And so the optimistic thing is, I, I, although we're not in a good situation now, the world population is now believed to peak. We're about 6.8 billion or something around there, and it's believed to peak somewhat below 9 billion. And we, I think we can, we can solve the energy problem and, um, and actually allow the developing countries and the underdeveloped countries to actually share in this wealth. But there are some environmental problems associated with energy, and some of you might not agree with this. But let's, let's talk about some local data. In, over the last uh, 150 years, this is the um, temperature readings of uh, average around the globe. And in 2005 was the warmest year. And if you notice around here, this is actually not, it's not, it's 20 of the last 21st warmest years uh, have now been since uh, 1980. Um, and it's believed that over the last thousand years, uh, this, the 2005 was the warmest. But this is nothing on really geological timescales. And so let's go back a little bit further. So here's the temperature in the last 420,000 years. There's more recent data that I, I didn't show, I'm not showing that goes back a little bit further than that, maybe six or 700,000 years. And this is a plot of both temperature CO2 and methane. So CO2 and methane are major greenhouse gases. And uh, it's reverse temperature. So this is temperature on a centigrade scale, relative change. This is 8 degrees centigrade. And here's where we are today. And so the first thing you notice is, well, we're in a nice warm period. And uh, most of the time was spent in pretty cold periods. These, these are ice ages. And so temperature is going up and down, going up and down like crazy, and the methane and carbon dioxide are following. And one thing I think it's safe to say, let's say 150,000 years ago, uh, when Neanderthal man was roaming around, um, that this increase in temperature that you see over here was not due to Neanderthal man and woman. Okay, I'm going to stick my neck out and say that's true. And... Um, and um, and you can't really tell whether carbon dioxide was a lagger or a leader. In fact, the resolution of these measurements uh, can't really say. So why, why are people worried? Well, here's where we are today, but, but that's where the CO2 is now today. So it's a little bit off scale from the immediate past. Um, let's go back to the more immediate history in the last thousand years. And this is carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide, which over the last bit since 1750, when you say that's more be the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, the increase in carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide around here, maybe by coincidence, was uh, tied to the start of the Industrial Revolution. And so, because, let me go back, um, because we're here in CO2 now, and for the last roughly million years, this is a little bit off-scale, and I, I should say that it's not off-scale in the really ge long geological period. There were other times when it was much higher, and there were other times when it was warmer. But, but in the immediate last million years, it, it's, it's of concern. And so one tries to do climate models, and you can try to model 
uh, what was happening due to natural variations, solar variations, the amount of volcanic activity, which throws up out of dust, which changes the amount of absorption of sunlight, and all these other things. And these are computer models. Uh, and you can twiddle around the parameters. And you, what you find, at least in this particular one, is that the red is the observations and the gray is the model. And uh, so it doesn't match that well. And when you throw in the uh, generation of the greenhouse gases, it matches. Now, is this compelling proof that, that humans cause it? No, it's not. It's suggestive because if you look at these computer models, they're, um, they're tweaked around a bit. And as the computer models get better and better, and I, I went to a talk two weeks ago, and some of the best climate models, which are now include the uh, feedbacks, instead of saying this is how much CO2 is in the atmosphere, what is the Earth going to do, now we say this is how much CO2 we're going to put in the atmosphere, and how is the Earth going to respond. And that's a big important change because as the Earth warms up, plant life increases, and the plants and also the ocean begins to absorb more CO2. Part of it is sequestered. And so there's a, a stabilizing negative feedback on that. And so there's a huge variance in the predictions. Um, with the current predictions of CO2 being emitted in the next 100 years, the variations go from, of the ones that were reported at this talk, they go from maybe 1.5 degrees centigrade in the next 100 years, which is pretty mild, to uh, pretty scary ones of uh, nine degrees. Uh, and so, uh, as the speaker said, there is no threat of consensus in the near future. Um, however, the speaker was uh, on the most conservative model, which said it's not going to increase that much. But, but what was a little alarming to the speaker was that uh, all the feedbacks weren't as good as we had thought. So there is some concern. Um, here's some more scary things. You have to take this with lots of grains of salt. But I, I would say, and this is my personal opinion, it's just, this is no longer science, it's opinion. And it's saying if there's a 30% chance of being half right, then it's of some concern. Okay, so it's a different sort of thing because the stakes are a bit higher. So if you go to a doubling of CO2 in the atmosphere from pre-industrial revolution days, which is 275, Today, we're 380, roughly. So doubling is 550. It was the target of the original Kyoto Protocols. This is the change in temperature. It, it cools down over here. So blue is colder. Uh, red is warmer. And it's warming up greatly in the northern latitudes. And in the U.S., it's, it's, it's getting warmer. And these are some of the estimates of the Midwest, where it's sort of this reddish pink. And at four times CO2 of pre-industrial, it's getting quite hot. So 6 to 10 degrees. Remember, it's eight, 6 to 8 degrees is the difference between the coldest ice age period and where we are today. So 6 or 8 degrees the other way is considerable warming. Um, precipitation is an issue. In North America, the amount of moisture in the summer growing seasons in the Midwest would be considerably reduced. Again, this is, should be taken with a huge grain of salt. One of the, more, the most recent climate models um, are showing that in the region of the world where you get the most sunlight, where you have the most biomass, where the biomass is expected to um, control the amount of CO2. So there's lots of CO2 that we put out, but it, it's now scarfed down by plants because there's increased plant activity. But at, if you believe these models, 
which you may or may not believe, then, um, well, you shouldn't fully believe. They're being refined. Let me just put it that way. Uh, it looks as though the, in the Brazilian rainforests in sub-Saharan Africa, where there's a lot of water, the amount of vegetation is not increasing as much as expected because the rainfall is not there. The rainfall is more in the northern latitudes, uh, like Canada, where it doesn't get much sunlight. So that's another issue. And the other thing is carbon dioxide is very stable. It's up there for a couple hundred years cycling around, but it takes a couple hundred years for it to change. So if, if in a miracle you actually control the CO2 and bring it back down, CO2 will still be there and the temperature, here's the temperature, will still continue to rise. And even the most conservative climate models say there's about 0.7 degrees of temperature rise already in what we've done. It's not risen yet because the ocean is a great um, thermal buffer. Okay, so let's talk about the sources of energy. Uh, this is the amount of oil we've been using from 1970 to 2000, the amount of coal, gas, hydro, and nuclear. And so right now, the current mixture in the world, energy use is uh, these fractions of oil, coal, natural gas, hydro, and nuclear, and the rest is... Uh, little slivers. Um, so in the future, how is this ratio going to change? Well, and are we going to run out of fossil fuel? And so many of you have seen uh, predictions. They're guesstimates. Um, oh, I keep on doing this. This is USGS. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and the DOE, where... Um, and you know what I do? I, I, after I end the talk, I'm not going to push save, and it's going to happen again. Uh, where <clears throat> it's a guesstimate because you have to make a, an estimate of what are the undiscovered reserves. And you have to make an estimate of as oil prices go up and you get better at recovering the reserves, what it's going to be. Uh, because right now, only 30 35% of the oil in the ground is actually brought up. The left rest is is not recoverable by current technology, okay? So it, there's, a, there's a lot of waste going on if, uh, in terms of recovering the oil. But nevertheless, uh, the estimates vary from the peak of oil production occurring within 10 years to occurring within 40 years. Um, and the estimates actually, these are not only USGS and DOE, but uh, um, many people in the oil companies are now saying something along those lines. There are a few outliers, like ExxonMobil doesn't say when the oil is going to run out, but BP and, and uh, Royal Deschel and others say, yes, we think the peak of production will be somewhere around here. Of course, again, it depends on a lot of things. If there's a worldwide recession for 20 years, that won't happen. It will be pushed out. Um, so in oil, these are, again, guesstimates. Um, but in sort of reserves for production, that means on the known reserves uh, in conventional oil, yet to find uh, is this yellow and unconventional. Actually, I personally think the unconventional is a bit higher. These are, these are amounts uh, where, of course, it's going to last more than 40 years. It will last 100 years because as oil becomes more dear, you begin to go to other alternatives. Coal is, uh, there's a lot of coal. This is a very conservative estimate of coal that it would last at least 200 years, uh, but many people think it could last as long as 1,000 years. An unconventional source is not only coal, but um, methane hydrates, tar sands, all this other stuff, 
So the news is that we won't run out of fossil fuel for at least several hundred years. Um, the coal and, and, and unconventional, very tarry oil like tar sands and things, uh, we actually have plenty of reserves. The largest coal reserves in the world are in the United States. The second largest are in China. The third largest is India, and the fourth is Russia. So that's actually, in my opinion, bad news, because coal is bad news on many accounts. If, even if you don't believe in CO2 being a pollutant, then you surely will believe that sulfur dioxide, nitrous oxide, mercury, and the radioactivity that's released when you burn coal is our pollutants. So this is an issue. Um, where does all the coal come from? Why do we have so much more coal than oil? Well, oil's kind of degradable. And so this is a roughly, uh, this is going back in history, and these are millions of years, 140 million years, 230 million years, and so on. And so oil actually degrades under high temperature, but coal is kind of stable. So this was in a particularly warm period in the geological history of the world, and there was a great flowering of plants, and, and the plants were able to, um, they became uh, resistant to biodegradation, degradation, they developed lignin, and so that they could actually be fossilized. And so the source of our fossil fuels were, were we believe, to be um, plant and animal life, mostly plant life. But uh, so coal is there because it actually has longevity, whereas the oil, uh, for example, degrades. We don't understand how the earth uh, really cycles carbon in detail, and I think we should work very hard to understand this because going back to the climate models, I don't think we understand the science of if, if the CO2 in the atmosphere increases, how the ocean and the earth will and the land will adapt to it. For example, in the ocean, um, these are, I don't know, uh, gigatons of whatever of carbon going these 90s and 90s cycling around. And for example, the, um, in the ocean, uh, there is some sequestration. There's little things that you hit you hear hitting your snorkel mask when you're snorkeling those little grains of sand, these little plankton that are the, you know, the, some of the um, top or bottom of the food chain, depending on who you are. Uh, um, and so what they do is, is they actually fix uh, carbon dioxide. It comes part of their shells. When they die, they can actually sink to the bottom of the ocean. Once they sink to the bottom of the ocean covered by sediments, it's actually mineralized and it's fixed. And so it becomes part of the fossil fuel, uh, and that's fixed. There is also a slow, most of it's cycling around in the ocean and also on land, and when trees and things rot, uh, there are microbes that break down, it's released as methane and other gases, but some of it does get fixed and, and ended up. Uh, and it it's very important to try to understand how the Earth is going to respond to that, because their Earth has a natural sequestration, but we don't fully understand that. We're also doing an experiment because, at least in the mid-latitudes near the equator, a lot of the vegetation is changing and, well, it's being destroyed. Uh, so, so there's all sorts of experiments going on. Um, well, according to the current forecast, the carbon dioxide will increase in the next 30 years, three times more than the previous 250 years. And I say again that there's abundant sources of fossil fuel. And so if you are worried about carbon dioxide, there is enough there. And if you believe some of these climate predictions, there is enough there to cook us. So uh, I think a, 
dual strategy is needed. Um, we want to conserve and maximize the energy efficiency and minimize the energy use uh, without killing economies. And we also want to develop new sources of clean energy for a number of reasons, even if you don't believe in climate warming, global change, uh, climate change or global warming. And so in the demand side, um, uh, this is uh, plotted here, CO2 emissions per person um, and wealth of the countries. And here's the U.S. We're the wealthiest, and here's the timeline. And we've actually been pretty stable per person in how much we're emitting. Um, but we're the, we're the leader. Uh, there is an outlier in France because it's about 85% nuclear, but it's generally following this sort of curve. So as you uh, have more people and as the wealth of countries grows, uh, and particular China and India down here, this is the great concern that um, I don't think we should tell China and India that you should stay poor. They want to become wealthy, and so you're going to climb up this curve if you don't, want it, if you don't do something. Uh, is it possible to control energy usage um, per person uh, without killing the economy? I think it is. California is a good example. In the middle 1970s, what happened, this is the, uh, the first oil crisis, if you will, of recent history, where it was a disruption in supply. There was the Yom Kippur War. There was Iraq invading Iran or vice versa. There was all sorts of uh, issues. OPEC uh, got together and became effective. And California uh, began to issue a few things in building efficiencies, a number of other things. And uh, the use of electricity in California then um, stabilized. And the rest of the United States increased by another 50%. And if you take out California, it increases maybe up to here because California's you know, 15% of the U.S. Um, so California is essentially, was essentially stable. And so it, it is possible to, to plateau. I think it's actually possible to decrease it without really dramatically changing the lifestyle or harming the economy. Um, the industry usually complains about, about things. Um, this is one example in refrigerator efficiency. Here we're plotted as a function of time. The brown curve is the average volume of a refrigerator going from, in 1947, um, 8 cubic feet to 22 cubic feet. And in the blue is the um, energy usage in the United States for the size of refrigerators. And so um, this is a remarkable technology feat. So the refrigerators kept on getting bigger and bigger, and the energy efficiency, when, uh, when we started to get serious about it, actually declined. So the first standard was in 1978 in California. And so why did it decline automatically? Actually, around the middle 1970s, the appliance people were told there will be standards coming out, and they started to do research in this. And so this is a success story in the sense that the first standards were not that high. They eventually bought into the fact that we could do with this. And, and then as the standards ratcheted up, what we find is uh, things got better and better. But this is refrigerators. How much are refrigerators? Well, you know, it's, you know if, if we hadn't done anything, and as business as usual, this would have been the uh, electricity used. And now this is the electricity saved, which is not much on a global scale, but it's, it's about equivalent to three of the biggest hydroelectric dam in China, the Three Gorges, and um, it's, um, 
it's equivalent to what you could ever get out of uh, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So, so it's it even the, and this is just refrigerators. Um, you can do things with gasoline tax and fiscal policy. Here's the United States fleet average. It's not really 25 miles to a gallon. That's the fleet average of cars, but light trucks and SUVs don't count. So it's closer to 20. And whereas Europe and Japan are are about a factor of two higher. So th these are important. Okay. So this is the predicament. Uh, we have a problem with energy supply and of many shades I'll get into a little later. So here's uh, potential supply side solutions. So, so let me pause and say, you can do a lot on the demand side. There are factors of two or four, and I think certainly a factor two without killing or really denting the US economy, that's my opinion. Um, and, um, and more, I don't know, but let's look at the supply side. Because in the end, it's not only about conservation. If you say that you can conserve your way to the energy solution, I think that's fundamentally wrong, especially in, if you look at the developing countries. So let's talk about coal, tar sands, shale oil. So they emit a lot of carbon. Coal, about a factor of two, two and a half more than methane. So, so people are thinking about sequestering carbon. That is to say, um, you take these fossil fuels, and if you burn them and extract the energy, can you capture the CO2 and put it in a place far away from the atmosphere and safely sequester it for hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of years? Uh, certainly, you, I think you can sequester at a small level. Uh, for example, uh, this is a diagram of enhanced oil recovery. The way if you stick a hole in the ground and, and just yank out as much oil from the natural pressure there, you get about 5% of the oil in that reserve. If you then squeegee in water and, and use the water, so here you're pumping in water here and you're squeegeeing the oil over here and you're recovering over here, you get another 15, 20%. And as a tertiary recovery, you now put in CO2 and the CO2 squeegees a little more oil and you're now, now to 35, maybe in the best 40% of the oil reserves. But in the meantime, because of the sedimentary formation, the CO2 is there. And so if the oil is well, if the wells are well capped and you haven't been put in fractures in the oil recovery, you can keep this stuff there for a long time. Because after all, oil, and especially the natural gas, was there for a long time. This is also true, uh, let's see, in depleted oil and gas reserves. This is deep depleted oil and gas reserves. You can use CO2. So this is actually economic because you're using the CO2 to get more oil out. Uh, and so oil companies are actually doing this. You can also use CO2 to, for example, uh, if there's a methane coal bed and there's methane attached to the coal, if you put in CO2 and you use the CO2 to displace the methane, you can recover methane. So this, uh, and either that or you, in unminable coal beds, you can maybe put use the coal to absorb the CO2, less proven. Uh, and then less proven is the fact that there are very deep saltwater beds underneath the freshwater tables under land. And if you put, let's say here's a, a gasification plant of coal, you, you, take, you, you gasify the coal, you take the CO2, you stick it in, in, the, uh, in these salt beds, 
depending on how it goes in, you can maybe store lots. In fact, you may potentially be able to store all the fossil fuel carbon, except people are very pessimistic. Uh, uh, well, they don't know. Let me, let me just put it that way. This is a, a more a bit of a wild card as to how much you can sequester. So this is something that's not completely proven, except at the, at the gas well levels. We know it seems to work, at least locally. I don't want to go into the details uh, of this, except uh, if you sequester it structurally and put in little crevices in rock, it doesn't seem to... The feeling now is it's not going to stay there that long. It's, it's a kind of a 100-year time scale. Uh, the best one, which could be um, tens or hundreds of thousands of years, if you actually turn this into some sort of carbonate and you mineralize it. And there's all, all sorts of things in between. Um, so you can buy 100 years' time of a certain amount, how good carbon sequestration is. Uh, in the long run, we don't know. We don't know the costs. They vary a great deal, but... Uh, Right now, it looks like you're talking about a factor of two in cost between just burning coal normally in, in current technology and um, gasifying it and sequestering. Most of the cost is in the sequestration, the capture and sequestration. Um, that factor of two is huge. Let me give you an anecdote. I was talking to the um, CEO of the biggest uh, utility company in the United States. It's in the uh, Chicago Midwest area, and he actually is very progressive, and he wanted um, to install a bunch of windmill farms. And the regulatory companies, uh, agencies said you can't do this because it would increase the cost of electricity by um, uh, a fraction of a cent per kilowatt hour, less than 10%. Um, because uh, they said the consumers won't go for it, and as advocates for the consumers, and it could harm the economy, we're just not going to let you do this. So it wasn't allowed. So, so there's, there's a, a factor two is huge, is what I'm saying. Okay? And that's a, a political reality. Um, these costs are actually somewhat optimistic. This Actually, I got this from a table uh, of the... Uh, uh, an IPCC report uh, that said these costs are if you are doing this at huge scale. And it doesn't factor in the fact that there would be environmental impacts. There's concern about leakage. And uh, the environmental impact is that if CO2 rises to 10%, it could be lethal. Um, and many of you may know that there, there was this lake in Africa and there was this natural upwelling of a burp of carbon dioxide that was accumulating in the bottom of this lake. And so burped up, and it, it landed in this, uh, between this mountainous area and kind of filtered down uh, in the valley, and it killed all the people and all the cattle and all the animal life uh, in this valley. So it's, it's not, it's, you know, there's some serious consequences um, if there's a big burp of CO2. Okay, let's talk about fusion. Okay. So... Um, uh, there's, for example, magnetic confinement. This is the inside of a tokamak where you have a hot plasma and you burn tritium and deuterium. Um, it's, um, there, it's, it has a problem. Um, well, the good news is that fusion is much less radioactivity. These, these curves, the blue and the red curves, are the amount of radioactivity that's generated in, um, 
in the containment vessels in fusion and in, fu in fission and in fusion, um, uh, this is the regulatory limit, and uh, so that the containment vessels in in a fusion reactor become radioactive due to neutrons, but the radioactivity is very low level relative to fission by many orders of magnitude. There, but there is a problem in the fusion reactors. The neutron level is so high that the metals become very brittle, and the inner container um, actually loses its structural integrity. It could be within a year or two years. And this is not good for a many-billion-dollar reactor. So there, there is a problem. Um, um, so ITER is going to be demonstrate, uh, will be coming, it's, it's now going forward, and then after ITER, there will be a demo uh, production plant. And after the demo, then you expect if all goes well and you solve all these problems, that fusion will come online. Um, but this is 2100, so the end of the 21st century, and if this is what we're predicting to be using, this is the amount of energy use, uh, fusion will be uh, a small fraction of that by the end of this century. So I think from between now and the end of the century, uh, I'm a big fan of putting money into fusion, not only ITER but all sorts of areas. But don't count us to save the day if the day is needed to be saved because for the next 50, 100 years, it, it's, it's, a, it's out there in the future. These are the amounts of new CO2 we will need to get within 550 parts per billion and, and ratcheting up. So if you're willing to tolerate higher levels of carbon dioxide, you don't need that much new source of CO2-neutral energy. Okay? And, and so and remember, at, at, at these levels, uh, even at the Kyoto agreements, some people think it's, it, it's dangerous. So uh, fission. Um, so there are two, in my mind, two serious issues with fission, and that's waste and nuclear proliferation. The other thing is if we want um, fission to be the main staple, the, the majority of the energy, 80% of the energy, we're talking about um, building a new gigawatt reactor every week for the next 50 years. And so uh, no country is actually thinking of turning on quite that fast. Um, and, uh, and so the waste and nuclear proliferation problem is the major issue. Um, if we currently, the world uses light water reactors. It's a, in the United States, uses what's called once recycling. You enrich the uranium at a certain level. You burn it once. Then you take the waste and you store it at the reactor sites, and eventually you hope to put it in a repository like Yucca Mountain. And so this is, if we continue on this path of once through light water cycling, by 2010, Yucca Mountain would have been filled up if it ever gets approved. And, and so that, that's a problem because Yucca Mountain is going to have it has had difficulty getting approved, and so it's going to be hard to say we can have five or ten Yucca Mountains because the first one has been difficult. This is the statutory limit. There is a thermal heat load limit, which is a factor of two higher, and that would, if, if we continued with the current mixture of nuclear energy, 20%, uh, it, it will be filled up by 2030. Um, let me go back. 
So there are other issues. What is, what is this blue curve? Well, this is, this is uh, the extreme other version of what we now have in our policy. Our current policy is not to recycle. The reason we have this current policy is by the middle 70s, it was deemed that if you recycle, you have the technology to isolate plutonium, and if you have that technology to isolate plutonium, uh, bad people can get their hands on plutonium and they can make bombs, dirty bombs, clean bombs, but bombs. They can make a, a, a dirty bomb. Uh, they can't make a high-yield bomb, but, but t the feeling now is the terrorists can make something that's a low-yield bomb, but it's still a pretty scary thing because it could be a kiloton explosion. And a kiloton explosion in Major City will mean that the city is, not, is going to be evacuated. So, so the feeling in the 70s was don't, don't uh, recycle because you now give the world much more of the stuff that you can, you can get into bad hands. Um, the counter-argument to that is, is that England and France uh, and Russia and now Japan will, be, will begin to recycle. And uh, other countries know how to do that. And so if the United States doesn't recycle, that's a factor of two change in the amount of plutonium accessible. So you can go either way. Um, um, people get very emotional about this and practically every other topic I've talked about. Um, <laughs> and um, the, the part about recycling is if you burn down the fuel uh, and you use – Neutrons that have higher energy, so these are, these are neutrons that are not like not light water reactor, but they're 1 MeV neutrons. You actually can burn down the uh, plutonium. You can burn, you can, you, you also convert U238 to plutonium. Uh, but you can actually optimize it to burn down the waste, so you can reduce the waste in weight or volume by factors of 10 or 30. That's good news. There's other good news. You can actually uh, reduce the lifetime by more than an order of magnitude, again, a factor of up to 30 or 40, uh, so that what happens to be a couple hundred thousand year problem turns out to be a 500,000 year problem, but the radioactive waste is much hotter, so you can't immediately put it in the ground. You've got to wait for it to cool off before you do that. But in the end, um, again, some people say, no, 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 that's bad. And other people say, uh, a thousand years is we've built pyramids that lasted longer than that, but we haven't built anything the last three or four hundred thousand years. Okay. So that's a, not a solved problem either. I hope you're getting the, the gist of this. So let's go to <laughs> wind, solar cells, and biomass. Okay. So all of these forms are actually forms of solar energy. It's driven ultimately by the sun. And um, if you look at how much sunlight falls on the land and water, and if you said, okay, 13 terawatts is the amount of power, you know, 24-7 we consume today. And so if you had some sort of conversion of energy at the 1% efficiency level, uh, you would need, uh, you know, 4% of the land. Okay? So that just sets a scale. Um, Wind is pretty good. Uh, it's now within 20% of, um, in, in good places, of, of uh, gas, and uh, it's going down. It's continuing to increase. Uh, these are very giant turbines, you know, 100 meters or so up in the air. These are one, two megawatt things. Um, uh, there's a group, of course, that's against wind. 
because they kill the birds uh, and they're unsightly. I think they're quite beautiful, but I'm very prejudiced. Um, but wind it, it probably won't, won't uh, be more than 10, 15% of the electricity output. And we don't know how to store electricity. Uh, the best ways, we do not store electricity. You can put it in a battery, but it's too expensive. You can use wind or nuclear to pump water up a hill and then extract it. Um, so at night in a nuclear reactor, they're beginning to pump water up a hill, and so you keep the nuclear reactors running. And similar with wind, you can, uh, but usually with there's wind, you don't have the water. You can put in there are wind sites where you can actually pump gas underground and use gas reservoirs and recover that, and it's roughly 50% uh, uh, efficient. It's actually remarkably good. So, you, you know, the compressed gas doesn't leak out, and you can recover it and generate electricity. Uh, but if you don't happen to be near those sites, then it is a problem. So if you want to go to wind or photovoltaic in a big way, uh, the storage of energy in, in many sites will be a big deal. And so I think there's a lot of research that has to be done on storing energy, electrical energy, particularly electrical energy in the form of... Um, transportation fuel. And transportation fuel to me, the first pass means liquid high density fuel, like gasoline, which is an extraordinary high density uh, for how far you can go on a tank of gas. Um, cost of photovoltaics is a wild card, meaning that uh, it needs about a factor 10 before it gets really wide scale deployment. Um, but that's silicon, and there are new classes of materials and nanotechnologies that have some promise, but it's still a wild card. Okay, so that's wind and solar. Biomass. Okay, so this is nature's photovoltaic thing, so it converts sunlight, but not into electricity. It does actually convert into electricity, but it actually goes further and converts into stored energy. Um, you would need a lot of land for it to be a significant uh, factor. My estimate, I did a back of the envelope and said if you, if you can improve the yield of something like switchgrass or Methanchus giganticus by a factor of two, which I think is plausible, that is, given the amount of sunlight and, and uh, various things, uh, and you make the recovery of the cellulose less energy intensive than it is today by which I think is realizable. Um, about 25% of the la arable land in the United States could uh, eliminate the oil imports. And now this is soft by a factor of two or three, but it's, it's not trivial. Um, there are people against this as well. Why? Because you, you despoil nature. Now, uh, Actually, we've done that already. <laughs> um, this is actually a pie chart of, of, of non-arable land forests in Savannah and other things. And look, there's a huge section that's already being cultivated in, in North America, in, in Asia, in China, India, uh, in various places around the world. Huge sections of land are now being cultivated. Uh, actually, it's under-cultivated where it's best in... Um, in South America, which gets a lot of sun and land, and also in sub-Saharan Africa. So it's an irony that the places where you can actually grow the best crops are not cultivated. There's some really good news about what we've been able to do with growing food. This is the population of the world from 1950 to 1995. 
this is the 150 equivalent. That's, it's, it's not the population of food. It's, it, what it's really a plot of is if you didn't get any better in agriculture and you had to track the number of people on Earth, this is how it would grow. But the amount of land under cultivation went by this. So the agricultural productivity of the world increased dramatically. There is every belief that we uh, don't need all the arable land in the world to feed the 9 billion or minus 9 billion people in the peak of the world's population. Um, and so there might be some leftover, and a considerable amount of leftover to grow energy instead of um, food. Um, this is um, the plant productivity in the current climate of the world. Black down here is good. So this is water limitation, uh, sunlight li limitation, and things of that nature, and temperatures. And so black is good. You can grow lots of stuff here. And uh, uh, red is no good. It's too dry, except if you can export water from the mountains. So California is uh, where the statistics lie. California actually delivers 20% of the agricultural produce in, in the United States, and it's bad. But it's only because we figured out to import water from the mountains. So there's all sorts of good stuff here, good stuff here, reasonably good stuff over here. Um, biology is incredibly uh, clever in its conversion of sunlight uh, into some charges, and the charges get moved around, and finally they go into some molecules that convert this electrical, essentially electrical energy into chemical energy. Um, because it's organic materials and because they're biomolecules, they actually get damaged by sunlight. And depending on uh, the intensity of the sunlight, the plant and everything, these so-called reaction centers that are actually doing the conversion of, of essentially electrical energy into chemical bonds that can be easily broken and recovered as energy, these things get destroyed within hours and they just blow apart, typically. And so biology is remarkable because there's a little thing that goes in, senses, oh, am I dead or not? And if it's dead, it extracts it, puts in a whole new unit, a new reaction center, and off it goes again, producing energy. So uh, if we're going to ever get a biomimetic that does this, this is where a bit, you know, it's not going to happen next year. But um, that would be ideal, um, it, that we can actually get some organic thing that self-reproduces and, and makes energy. Um, but in the short term, we can actually go back to nature. And there's two ways. One is that you can use existing plants that do convert sunlight, CO2, water, nutrients, into some biomass, namely cellulose or hemicellulose. This lignin is bad stuff. This is very hard to break down. And it actually protects the good stuff. Um, and you can actually try to make the plants self-fertilizing, drought and pest resistant. And then you, so this is a plant that, it uh, grows very rapidly and uh, doesn't need that much water and it's very frugal. And then the next thing you want to do is you want to break down this plant material into chemical energy that doesn't, isn't very in energy intensive. One of the things that we are beginning to learn how to do is that we can actually engineer plants so that they um, fix nitrogen, which is the major fertilizer component. Fertilizer comes from ammonia. Ammonia comes from methane. Corn, for example, is a very um, fertilizer, nitrogen-intensive crop. 25% of the energy that goes into growing corn and turning it into ethanol is actually in the fertilizer input. 
so it's possible to now begin to think of engineering crops to fix their own nitrogen or to engineer crops so they enter into a symbiotic relationship with microbes in the root nodules to fix nitrogen. It's possible to engineer crops to become drought resistant. So what that means is, because what, what are you doing? You're, you're converting sunlight energy, CO2, and water. You're splitting water into some chemical energy. So each molecule of water, if it's really abstemious, goes into energy. Of course, there's a lot of transpiration. Um, but if there's, most of the arable land is not irrigated, and so you want the crops to grow if you're going to grow crops for energy so that if it doesn't rain for four weeks or whatever, they don't die. They kind of slow down the metabolism. Um, and so uh, these are crops um, uh, that have been genetically altered, so they're much more drought-resistant, exposed to the same amount of water. Um, this particular, these particular crops are, um, well, I don't know if it's good or bad, but this is work from Monsanto. <laughs> I read, never mind. <laughs> um, there, the real challenge is the conversion of, of the cellulose into um, chemical energy, into, let's say, ethanol. Ethanol may not be the best one. It could be methanol. It could be octane. It could be a number of hydrocarbons. I have a prejudice that I want a liquid fuel. Probably I don't want hydrogen. But um, it's very energy intensive right now. The yield in the current conversion, let's say in fermentation, is very, very bad. And you're throwing away a factor of 14, 15 uh, than if you just took the plant, dried it out, and burned it. Okay? So there's a lot of room for improvement if you want to convert the cellulose material into a liquid fuel. If you dried out and burned it and generated something else like electricity, you would be better off. And so um, this is um, a pilot commercial ethanol production plant, it's very heavily energy intensive. It uses a lot of energy. It heats up steam. It breaks the stuff down. It uses hot acid. Uh, it looks like an oil refinery on the outside. It looks like an oil refinery on the inside. Um, and um, one wants to break it down in a, in a more clever way, if possible. I think there is a possibility of breaking it down. Uh, nature has done this very well. They've, they've uh, grown microbes that naturally break down things. Remember, methane is called swamp gas, and it was discovered because rotting vegetation was converted into methane by microbes in the bottom of a swamp. And um, so the idea here is that can you convert these microbes, which are, um, you know, like plants, microbes don't exist to make us energy. By the way, plants don't exist to make us food. And uh, we've really ruined these plants. Uh, we've taken wheat and corn, and we've made them essentially into sex fiends. <laughs> and so a lot of the energy is growing seeds, uh, reproductive. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure you'd call that sex. But, but <laughs> a lot of the energy is growing in, in food things that they didn't really want to grow. And so it's conceivable that we can turn microbes not conceivable, I think it's really possible that we can turn microbes into much more efficient energy, either energy generating uh, uh, things from sunlight to energy or from breaking down cellulose. Uh, there's an example of, of this new field called synthetic biology, probably a bad name. Um, but what it means is that you imbue in these organisms, either a plant or a microbe or whatever, not just one gene, 
but dozens of genes. Now, usually if you stick in more than one gene, the whole system starts to break down and the thing dies on you. It's pretty fragile because there's all sorts of interlocking systems that we fully don't understand. But in this new field of synthetic biology, you try to understand uh, all these interlocking uh, components. And in one case, this is the work of Jay Kiesling at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, who's also a professor of chemical engineering at Berkeley. He taught E. coli how to grow um, um, a precursor to an anti-malarial drug that uh, comes from a plant in Asia. And uh, he's done very well. He's uh, increased the productivity of the production of this drug in E. coli by a million-fold. And um, it, he got a, recently a grant from the Gates Foundation for $42 million to put into commercial production and he thinks he can get down to a cost of 25 cents a cure. This is very important because the malaria kills about 2 million, roughly 2 million people a year. It's hard to tell because most of them are very poor people and, and many of them are children. And in, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, the protozoa, malaria protozoa is now resistant to the quinine-based drugs. And so that was going to go up by a lot, the number of people killed by malaria. And so this drug uh, uh, is not yet resistant. Uh, the protozoa is not yet resistant to the drug. And so um, he thinks it's commercially viable. Um, I spoiled him. Since coming to the lab, he was going to cure another disease. And he now thinks he wants to uh, break down cellulose, which I think is more of an issue. Uh, and so... Uh, so the question is, can synthetic organisms be engineered to produce some sort of liquid fuel from the biomass? And, of course, you can just go directly and, and get some um, uh, green algae of various kinds and try to uh, first understand how they do it and try to improve their efficiency by a lot. Because remember, this algae and all these plants, are their sole goal in life is, is to make more algae, uh, for example. And so can we alter them just as we altered the food we eat? Uh, can we alter them to, produce, to grow energy? So if you think about our national concerns, even if you don't believe in climate change, you probably are concerned about national security, but national, and these are international concerns, and national security is tied to energy security. I was at a science hearing uh, about a month ago, and, and we were talking about energy uh, support for energy research uh, at the science committee and um, on both sides of the aisle they said well you know we're spending 30 40 billion dollars a year buying oil from people who don't always like us and so this is an issue uh, it's important that we do this in a way that doesn't kill the economy both of the United States and the rest of the world I also think that uh, we're, we, in the 20th century, the United States was in a great advantage. We had cheap, abundant sources of energy. Uh, it's part of our national wealth. Uh, and countries like Japan or most of Europe didn't have oil. And so they had to uh, grow their economies uh, in a more thrifty way. Um, now they're somewhat at an advantage because uh, as uh, now oil is now internationalized and, and is, if it gets more expensive, then, then you're at an economic disadvantage if you use a factor of two or three more energy per person, which we do. And then there's environmental concerns. 
very serious environmental concerns about pollution of um, sulfur dioxide, nitrous oxide, mercury, and all these other things, uh, and CO2. Uh, so, at least in my mind, um, because of these concerns, getting sustainable CO2-neutral energy, I think, is, is, is a real imperative, and it's a huge challenge uh, that science faces. We don't have a magic bullet at the moment. There probably won't be a single magic bullet, but I just went through a litany of things where research can be done um, and should be done. For, let me go back, you pick a reason. Um, and you don't have to believe in all of them, but you can pick any one you want. So I was um, part of a committee led by Norm Augustine that um, it was a National Academy studies, uh, and the charge of the committee was how is the United States going to prosper in the 21st century? And it was a very unusual Academy committee because it was one-third of the people on the committee were actually CEOs or former CEOs of major high-tech companies. Um, the Norm Augustine was the chair and C, former C, chair and CEO of Lockheed Martin. Uh, Craig Barrett of Intel was there. Um, uh, the former chair and CEO of Merck, Roy Vagelis, was on the committee. Um, uh, I'm just trying to think now. There's um, DuPont, the chair and CEO, the current chair and CEO of DuPont, Chad Holloway. Um, the chair and CEO of ExxonMobil was on the committee. He was an outlier. Uh, <laughs> there were a few others, and there were some, and about a third of the committee were university leaders, presidents of Yale and Maryland and Rensselaer Polytech and others, and there were a few scientists also. There were 20 of us. And um, so we wrote a report that said the way the U.S. was going to prosper in the 20th century is that it had to rely on its intellectual capital. And so it had to pay attention to growing intellectual capital and attracting intellectual capital around the world and making it a friendlier place and to um, and not to outsource uh, the um, the quality jobs that we to India or China or wherever now there was one issue that we that I have to confess was the most contentious issue and that is are we going to invest in energy research and so this was the recommendation, and it was, you know, debated around a lot. Uh, there was uh, the CEO of ExxonMobil did not want to sign off on this one, so he wrote a dissenting opinion. Um, but, but many of us felt that we should invest more in energy research. And so that was the only scientific challenge that we said pay attention to. Um, there is now... Uh, in Inter-Academy Council, that's a collection of all the National Academies of Sciences around the world, and there's a representative, that's the council of 10 people, the pre uh, former president of the U.S. Academy, Bruce Alberts, and the president of the Royal Society, and all these other uh, people, um, uh, have commissioned a study transitioning to sustainable energies, not only for wealthy countries, but also for developing countries. And... Um, and it's, uh, it's to look at the science and try to, try to uh, at least frame these uh, issues and uh, to help policymakers in, in various countries, including developing countries, on, on what you can do with energy. And so I'm uh, part of this committee, and um, although I'm very late on my writing assignments, this is something that's very important.
Now, now I'm coming to the end. And as Bill has mentioned, that Bill Brinkman was at Bell Laboratories for many, many years. And I was there for nine years. This is Bell Laboratories in Mary Hill, New Jersey. Let's see. Bill and I used to live around here, right? You were here and I was here. About right. <laughs> and we'd, I, I would hop over the fence and walk in. It was wonderful. Um, this was a great laboratory when I was there. Um, Fifteen scientists who worked there uh, received Nobel Prizes, and it was really a great laboratory. And many, many of the people who worked at Bell Laboratories not only went on to be, um, uh, went on to academia and industry, they, uh, outside of Bell Laboratories, uh, some of them even went on to management. And um, uh, Bell Laboratories did many, many things. It, it's, it was, you know, helped invent the laser. It invented the transistor. This is a, um, a model, maybe the real thing, of the first transistor. Uh, it, uh, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's come a long way. Um, it invented information theory. It, it, it invented many of the things uh, that, that we use in today's technology and, and it formed a lot of the basis of, of uh, uh, technology. Now, when you think of Bell Laboratories and the invention of the transistor, you think of these three people. Shockley, who was a theorist, he never did this. Uh, <laughs> but he was the head of the department, and that's where he wanted to sit. And, and uh, Bertrand... Bardeen and Bertan were standing by watching. Um, but in actual fact, they, it not only required theoretical and experimental physics, it retired, required material science, both before and after. And uh, it required an understanding of the electronic structure of these materials. It required understanding the surfaces of the materials and what the interfaces between positive and negatively doped semiconductors did. Basically, it required a lot of areas. And in the 10 years between it was discovered, when you put two different pieces of semiconductor together, it would only conduct electricity one way, they actually made a solid-state amplifier. Okay. It happened very quickly on a university timescale, considering all that had to be done. And for the 10 years previous and the 10 years after, much of the foundation of semiconductor science for the next half century was laid out. Okay? It, there was great science done in those times. But it was an applied project. But in pursuit of this applied project, some great stuff was done. And I think um, the energy issue has a similar sort of feel to it in my mind. It's an applied project, but there's going to be great science that one can do in material science, in semiconductor physics, in bioscience, in a lot of areas. So, um, so here we are at Berkeley Lab. It's a small lab overlooking the Berkeley campus. This is the budget. It's a, about a half a billion dollars a year. And there's a number of employees. Um, and uh, it, too, is a very distinguished laboratory. A similar distinction, actually. Uh, there, ten of its employees were Nobel Prize winners, and the remarkable thing is eight of them did their Nobel Prize winning work at the laboratory. Unlike me, they weren't brought in uh, from the outside. And I think another is on the way, the person who discovered uh, that the universe is accelerating after the Big Bang and so-called dark energy, which is appropriate because it was funded by the Department of Energy. 
but uh, that there's something mysterious that we don't understand that's making the universe expand much faster, and it's not like any matter or energy that we know about. And uh, right now, there are roughly 3% of the National Academy of Sciences are members of the laboratory, okay, which is pretty good. And um, it's a lab of true distinction. And it's a laboratory that I think is the closest thing to Bell Laboratories we might have today. Okay? Uh, and, and there are a few applied problems like this. I'm, now, that doesn't mean that I'm ordering everybody to do and work in this, because if I ordered anybody to do anything, uh, I'd be out of a job. Um, and so, so what I do is I give talks like this. And, um, and so it, I'm trying to engage these brilliant scientists who work on what they want to work on to try to come together and work on some of the things I've outlined. And not only that, of course, it's all now being driven from the ground up. And so they're thinking very hard about much uh, cleverer ways of doing these things. And so, you know, there may be hope. Um, and even if you don't believe in global warming, you do want to uh, get out of importing lots of foreign oil as a minimum. And uh, I'll skip the fundraising part and go back. And with, <laughs> and with that, I'll stop and thank you. <laughs> Okay, so the question is, can I comment on the relative cost of uh, solar concentrators versus um, just plain silicon? Is that, is that the question? Okay, so, so here's the, the, the issue. If you're going to use non-concentrators and just raw silicon, silicon's uh, this order of magnitude too expensive. Now, if you want to go really high-tech, you can drive the efficiency up from, from 10 to 20-plus percent all the way up to 36% by using high-tech, multi-layer uh, semiconductor technology. 36 is now the record. But it's really expensive when you do things like that. And it, that doesn't look like it's going to get less expensive. So the idea here is you get this big solar concentrator and you focus the sunlight on this, I'm telling the others. And so, so you're willing to pay a high cost uh, of, of, of something of very high-tech and then you get this thing that tracks, okay? And there are people who believe that that's the way to go. There's private money going into this. There's some firm in Australia that's making lots of noise. I don't know whether that's the way to go or not. Um, versus really cheap and, and a factor of 10 or 20 cheaper and then you just deploy it and you don't make it so high tech. Um, the thing about the solar concentrator is that's known technology. Okay, so so for private venture stuff, which wants to see, you know, wants to be bought out in a couple of years, that's probably a good way to go. Um, you can go to organic uh, solar cells, but they degrade rapidly, and that has that's not a solved problem. Uh, you you can go to the nanoparticles, which don't degrade as rapidly, but uh, 
so you have a nanoparticle that absorbs the sunlight, another nanoparticle that, so you distribute the thing, so another nanoparticle that conducts it. And so, so th there, this is a possible technology that has promise, especially if you can line the stuff up so the, con so the conduction losses aren't as high. But, so I'm agnostic. Uh, I actually want to see a lot of out-of-the-box stuff. I'm, I, I think there's, there's hope. Other questions? Um, I think there are a lot more things in the way of that than what you just mentioned. Um, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. There's some fusion experts. Rob? Okay. <laughs> Okay, yeah, there, there, there are other issues. Uh, but remember, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pro-fusion res research, but it, you can't count on it for 50, 75, 100 years in a major way, it's fair to say. So, so, so I'm all for doing it. I'm also for actually doing things other than just eater. But we've got a, we've got a, a more pressing problem if you believe in the, these other issues I talked about. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Some of my friends say I'm crazy, but uh, some of my friends said I was crazy to, to, I was part of this committee, there was a lot of uh, talking behind the scenes uh, to convince the administration to, to double the physical sciences budget over a seven year period. They thought we were nuts. That is now in the budget of the president. Okay, whether Congress destroys it or not is another question, whether they pork it up. But the president is now calling for double the physical sciences budget as part of how the United States is going to remain competitive in the 21st century, um, and it, which includes, and we emphasize basic research. Okay, so I think there's a possibility that before the end of this administration, they might do something. Uh, their Congress. Uh, uh, in the Senate, there are three drafts of bills going forward for carbon cap-and-trade systems now. I don't know whether they're going to be passed uh, or not, but um, it's, um, it's a possibility. Uh, some of us are being asked to comment on the proposed legislation as to whether this is, you know, going to work or not. Uh, so I, I think... This thing I said about the appliance standards, I think, is true about uh, carbon. So if you put a start with a very modest carbon cap and trade, so industry doesn't get scared off and you don't turn it into a recession, and see how it goes, and then ratchet it up. So, so, and uh, so I was called by the senior Stafford Feinstein's office. This is Diane Feinstein in California, and said, you know, what do you want? And I said, do that carbon cap and trade, and you've got to do it bipartisan.
both Republicans and Democrats, because if, unless it's deeply bipartisan, it's never going to work. So I see signs that that's changing. We'll see. I don't. Um, the synthetic biology, uh, the short term is, is, is grow crops uh, for energy, and uh, the other possibility is microbes for energy or, and microbes for conversion of cellulose. Either microbes, you know, a super algae, or, or use the microbes to break it down. Um, the long term, I don't think you really want to stay there for a long time. There, there's other issues, uh, and you want to get a biomimetic system in the long term, but in the short term, um, as possible. Uh, you know, there's going to be lots of environmental concerns because, because you're actually wanting to grow a superweed. <laughs> but, but actually, you want to grow a sterile superweed because the... Um, um, you don't want to, the plant to spend any energy on reproduction. And as we all know, you can spend a lot of energy on reproduction, <laughs> or at least trying to reproduce. <laughs> what? Well, we have that already in, in the plants we now grow for food. Right? Very obedient. Except we now want to grow plants for energy. And it's not crazy, because there's another thing at work here. We, we have incredible agricultural capacity in the United States far more than we actually need. There's, on average, the last five years, $20 billion in agricultural subsidies. And they're not going to go away because 30-plus states consider themselves farm states. There's too much politics in the agricultural subsidies. But there's also something going on. The world trade agreements are now beginning to say you can't export these crops. It started with cotton but it's going to be for the, a lot of the staple crops like corn and soybeans and all these other things. So you have to sell them in the open market for a very good reason, because if you sell crops that are heavily subsidized in the open market, you actually destroy indigenous farming in developing countries. It's very hard for those countries to compete. And I used to think we used to make a lot of terrorists that way. That was the way we were actually making a lot of people in the world angry at us because if they had a bad crop and we had heavily subsidized crops, they get wiped out. One or two bad years and they're wiped out. Uh, and so it's a good thing that what we're doing with the rest of the world. So here we have a lot of agricultural capacity and we can't sell it on the international market and we shouldn't eat it. <laughs> we're eating enough. <laughs> so why not grow some stuff for energy? And, and it's in our borders. And it's not that much. You know, worst, you know, factor 30% to get rid of oil imports of the arable land. Uh, is it okay? <laughs> My brother's a lawyer. <laughs> He's very wealthy. I actually like him. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think uh, uh, I'm going to be a purist here and, and, and say that the greatest thing about science is 
It's about discovering how nature works. And it's wonderful to discover how nature works. Now, apart from that, it actually can be useful if it's used. But, but I'm, that is not to say that I think we should be only funding science that has short-term usefulness. Uh, I think we should fund all sorts of science, including you know, looking at dark energy and, and, and all this other stuff that um, may not be useful. We, I don't think we're going to harness dark energy for our energy problem in the near future. But, but I think it's part of the intellectual excitement of, of understanding what the universe is about and what nature is about at all levels, from you know, the universe down to the subatomic level. Uh, how can we encourage kids to do this? I think we've got to get them interested in, in that uh, this is really neat stuff. Uh, you know, as Bill knows, when I found out something in Bell Labs, I would go running up and down the halls and get really excited. And so I said, guess what? And it, it could be even something really stupid, like cooling and trapping atoms. <laughs> he was not impressed. <laughs> or, or even dumber, it could be a, a, a private realization that I now have a very clear way of understanding something at a very intuitive level. That's, you know, much better than any textbook. And that's also kind of neat. Uh, but now this stuff is also, what's nice about this is capturing the imaginations of a lot of young and middle-aged people because there's a great scientific challenge here of understanding. Because you have to, in order to get to the answers we want, you have to understand some stuff about nature, either the biological side or the material side, the matter side. So, so all that stuff is really good, and, and oh, you actually might help save the world. So it's nice. It is a major problem. Yep. Berkeley Lab is not very that expensive because we have a severe border problem. Um, the, um, uh, 250 of our principal investigators are also professors. And when we get too expensive, they shift labor costs and they run it through campus. It's called tax minimization. <laughs> the, the financial people call it tax evasion. Uh, and and it, is, it is a problem. And I'm spending actually more than half my time uh, looking at the operations side of the laboratory because over the last couple of decades, some bad habits have formed on the operations side when money was plentiful. And so it has to be cost effective. And so it is a problem. I'm working very hard to try and change that. It's a, it's, it, you have to, there's a little change in culture, but I, and, and some of, the people at Lawrence Berkeley Lab would say, Steve, what are you trying to do? You're going to make facilities more efficient? That's impossible. And I say, if, it, if we don't make it more efficient, it's exactly what uh, you just described. There will be 
sort of a slow strangulation where it's so cost ineffective, taxpayers have got to ask themselves, why do you want to do this? Okay, so you have this great asset if it's efficient, but if it's grossly inefficient, don't do it. So this is, you know, part of what I'm trying to do is actually to make it more efficient. So the dollars are as effective as, as at a university, but where it's not quite as stovepiped as a university and where you can get teams of people. So we'll see. Well, okay. Um, um, remember I said that right now roughly 10, 15 per times more efficient just to dry it out and burn it. So, so there now there's little hybrid things, so they burn some of it. But in the long run, I think you want to get chemical breakdown. So it's, not, it's sort of like fermentation, crudely speaking, but, but fermentation has issues. So you want to get the cellulases and whatever enzymes you want to really break down the stuff and make some chemical fuel, and it's not clear which chemical fuel you want. Hydrogen is easy. Ethanol is possible, too, methanol, uh, all these other things. So is your question, how do I see it eventually, whether we're going to get there? The question is, which pathway do you see? And what the time scale is going to take a third Oh, well, come on. You've you, you got you to, you know, this is research. Uh, but I don't think it's... Uh, a 50-year timescale to know whether it's going to work or not. I, I'm thinking more of a 10-year timescale, or less. Where, and so you want to do you know, a broad portfolio, and you kind of march along. And once you realize it's not going to scale right, then you say, OK, don't go there. Okay. So it is applied research, but it's long-term applied research, because you're looking for really different things. Okay, I think we should thank uh, Steve again for uh, exciting. And <laughs>